Welcome to Deeper, Growing in Holiness One Day at a Time, a new podcast endeavor that we've got going. I'm Adam Wright, and I'm happy to be joined today by Father Michael Rainier, a priest I've had the privilege of knowing for a few years now. He is the author of a book, The Forgotten Language, How Recovering the Poetics of the Mass Will Change Our Lives. And I'd like to start with just a few thoughts from an article that was written recently in the National Catholic Register about this book and one of Father's parishioners talking about the liturgy and elements such as incense, chant, and whatnot said these are not just superficial things but things that turn your head and say, look here, see this, this is where you should be focusing your attention to. Father said, to me, it's one of the little ways I can draw attention to how attractive and evangelistic beauty really is. The more beautiful the Mass is, the more beautiful our Christian lives become, and the more the people who are searching and hurting will be introduced to an authentic encounter with Christ. The Mass causes an interior conversion, a remaking that transforms us into the image of God. The poetry of the Mass is an open door to heaven. Which reminds me of this wonderful passage from Romano Guardini from his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. The church has not built up the opus day for the pleasure of forming beautiful symbols, choice language, and graceful stately gestures, but she has done it insofar as it is not completely devoted to the worship of God for the sake of our desperate spiritual need. It is to give expression to the events of the Christian's inner life the assimilation through the Holy Ghost of the life of the creature to the life of God in Christ, the actual and genuine rebirth of the creature into new existence, the development and nourishment of this life, its stretching forth from God in the blessed sacrament and the means of grace towards God in prayer and sacrifice, and all this in the continual mystic renewal of Christ's life in the course of the ecclesiastical year. The fulfillment of all these processes by the set forms of language, gesture, and instruments, their revelation, teaching, accomplishment, and acceptance by the faithful together constitute the liturgy. We see then that it is primarily concerned with reality, with the approach of a real creature to a real God, and with the profoundly real and serious matter of redemption. There's a lot to digest there, and one of the joys of the Mass is its riches, the riches of the Mass, inexhaustible in treasure. Father, there's a lot that we could say, but I want to start with this. Uh, First off, welcome. And second, in the title of your book, The Forgotten Language, How Recovering the Poetics of the Mass Will Change Our Lives, can we start with the definition of poetics? Because I think that will help us unpack everything we've just encountered briefly, and we haven't even started with the book yet. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me, Adam. It's always fun to talk to you, and you clearly came prepared for this conversation. <laughs> so, I mean, you're doing deep dives into Guardini, so th- this is going to be a serious conversation. I hope all the listeners are uh, buckling up their seatbelts here, because if we're talking Guardini, it's it's going to be fun. Uh, so, poetics, uh, it, it can be a, a word that I, I think is uh, misunderstood, because we think immediately poem. So is he talking about poetry? Is he, is he writing a book about the language of the Mass specifically? Oh, the Psalms are poems, or some of the prayers are poems. And I am talking about that, but poetics is so much more. So the word poem or poetics, it comes uh, from the root word meaning to be a thing made or to be made. So poetics is really an examination of what it means for, for us as human beings to be made by God, to have a creator what it means then for us as human beings to create, particularly creating beautiful things. So create a poem, a thing made, uh, create beauty, the symbols of the mass, uh, this dense language, this dense poetic language that remakes us. So the mass, that's fundamentally what it's doing. As Guardini's uh, pointing to this fact, it's a real thing, it's a real relationship it's not just an outward set of symbols, but it's actually affecting change. And the Eucharist is the heart of it, because the Eucharist is is where um, we see this fundamental creative moment. Right, the second person of the Trinity, he's, he's assumed human flesh. It's the sacrifice. 
he sacrifices that, that humanity that he's assumed in a perfect way, and in so doing, perfectly remakes us or, or puts us onto this path towards achieving our fullness as saints. So it's, it's all about the interior life. It's all about uh, being transfigured towards beauty. And that's what poetics is, is this whole examination of, well, how is my life beautiful? And how are the particular things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis, not just the mass? And that's my argument in the book is that if, you, if we get the mass right, then it spills over into the rest of our lives, and our lives become beautiful, like these poems that we write every day through our act, for, through our uh, through our actions, our activities, because everything uh, it, it's a real thing, and it's connected to the transcendent. So, so nothing is is unimportant, right? Not the not the breakfast you made for your toddler this morning, not the job. That, that you're, you're doing, um, not your hobbies, not your interests. It's all important, and it's all beautiful. You quote Igor Stravinsky That's in right. the beginning of your book, who says, poetics is the study of work to be done. Whose work? Who, who, who is doing the work here? So I'm going to depart from Stravinsky, and I'll just tell you, because I don't know exactly how he would answer that question. But essentially, he's saying, look, we have work to be done. He's, so he's, he's composing these really beautiful pieces of music. And he's saying, look, that's my work. Uh, my job is to be creative. And so that's the poetic endeavor. Uh, and we all have work to be done, whatever our particular field is, to be the best parent, to be the best guy who fries fish at the fish fry. Uh, to, to be an artist, uh, to, to worship, to become a saint. So we all have work to be done. Uh, as, a, as a Catholic, then, I would say, well, the, the first work, the first activity is God's activity in our hearts and that work of grace. And so we're responding to that superabundance of grace because God always gives us more than we need. It's always more. The, the chalice overflows. Uh, grace is superabundant. That's what uh, the Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain says. It's, it's a superabundance. There's more than we know what to do with. And it's, it's, it's like holy oil sort of pouring through our fingers. And so what do we do? We live beautiful lives with great joy. Yeah. I love uh, – it, it's somewhat of a dated analogy from my youth ministry days. But when we would talk about the, the grace of God – and the stain of sin and how the grace of God overcomes the stain of sin. I remember this demonstration where we would have a, a clear glass of water and then we'd put in some drops of food coloring and we'd say that's sin and then it mixes in with the water and then we would pull out just pitcher after pitcher of new clean water and we would just keep filling that glass and it would keep overflowing and overflowing and eventually you wouldn't be able to see a trace of the color. And not because of anything the glass did, but because of the water that kept being poured in. And as you talk about God's grace overflowing, you know, an overflowing chalice, that's immediately where I go, that there, there is no shortage of grace to overcome any stain of sin that we freely offer to God and say, all right, here I am, a broken, humble creature. Uh, you have to do some work here, God. Right. You do the work. And the point of grace is that doing the work becomes something joyful for us. So the Christian life should not be me gritting my teeth and through sheer willpower trying to be a good boy and get into heaven. The Christian life is the conversion of our desires to what God desires. And that's what grace does and that's what beauty does. So we're living our best lives and, and we're absolutely reveling in them and, and we are happy. And the more we love what God loves, the happier we are. We use the term when quoting Guardini, Opus Dei, you know, and, and translated the work of God and what a great work it is. So when we think of the Mass in those terms and we think of, as you just said, the whole of Christian life, and, and I love the image, uh, perhaps a poetic image of the potter's hands and, and we're the clay. Uh, there's, there's a contemporary Christian artist who has a song uh, saying that God is the artist, the maker, or the canvas, or the clay. Why is that so important to think of, first and foremost, that not just the liturgy, but really everything in the story of redemption is the Opus Dei first? Not, not to absolve us of a part. We do play a part in this because we have free will. But why, why do we have to start there? Why do we have to get that right? 
because of the nature of what poetics is. So art makes no sense uh, without that transcendent element to it. Um, so because we're, we're making things because we're trying to explore the meaning of, of what it means to live as a human being with an eternal soul, right? So uh, you've probably had that experience where you, it's just a perfect moment. Maybe you're sitting with your kids in the backyard and the weather's perfect and they're playing and you're watching them and you, you think, how does all this love fit into the world? It's impossible. How, how am I feeling what I'm feeling? What is this, this sense of the transcendent, this almost intuition of eternity that, I, that I'm experiencing right now? What is it? And then it's gone. Right, and then we get we get sad. <laughs> that's that's the pain of nostalgia, that pain of of feeling our home briefly, but then knowing we're not there yet. Um, but if so, let's say a, a poem. You're writing a poem. You're not simply writing a poem to describe the outward appearances of, say, a bird, because you think birds are cool. Uh, so Gerard Manley Hopkins, he's a Jesuit priest who wrote poetry in the uh, the nineteenth century. He has a poem about about a kingfisher which is a, a bird that um, it sort of glows blue. It has this particular property in its feathers that it refracts sunlight and it, it flashes like lightning and it dives into these freshwater rivers and it, it fishes out birds. And he's watching this, this kingfisher in flight and he's talking about it. And you're reading it and you realize he's talking about a real bird and a real afternoon and a real experience. But the point is not that he wants to tell us about this bird. He's actually telling us about the activity of the Holy Spirit in the world. And so there's a connection, and that's what poetics does, that's what art and beauty does, is it takes a, a real particular thing and it shows that thing in the light of the eternal. That's what the mass does, it takes real particular things, real particular people, uh, you and I, and it's, it's not um, trying to turn us into this abstract concept of a saint that we're all the same. We all have to worship the same, look the same, think the same. But you go to the masses as you, I come to the masses as me. We're unique creatures. We really are ourselves. And as we experience that grace, we become more and more ourselves, more and more unique. That's why the saints have such strong personalities because they're, they're more fully realized through grace and they become who they are. And so you see through that the process of God is taking us and he's, he's knitting us into this transcendent reality, the communion of saints, his universal love. And it's mysterious. We can't really explain how this happens. How am I still exactly myself, more myself than ever, but also a member of the body of Christ in the fullness and the mystery of what it means to be in this grand communion? Before we go more into what is happening at the Mass, because that is where I would like to go next. I want to provide some context for our listeners uh, about you, about your upbringing, to lend some perspective, because we, we all have different, uh, I guess, we've all had different paths into the church. Some of us born and raised Catholic. I was baptized as an infant. I was brought to Mass before I could even recall that I was being brought to Mass. Um, and I, I grew up with the Mass. So you have somewhat of a, a different upbringing. You did not grow up Catholic. And I wonder if you could share just a little bit of your journey into the Catholic Church with us. Sure. I'll try to keep it short and sweet. But if people are interested in the forgotten language, I do go through a lot of uh, how I was attracted to the Mass and then uh, drawn into the, the Catholic uh, faith. But uh, basically, I, I grew up in uh, St. Charles, Missouri here. Uh, which is just just west of St. Louis for those who those of you who don't know where it is. Uh, and I was born into a what I'll call a Pentecostal family, so uh, basically a free church or ev evangelical. Um, grew up uh, going to that that sort of a church, which is it's it's very free ranging. Their worship style they they don't like liturgy. They don't really have sacraments. Um, what uh, what they're concerned with is experiencing the presence of God in their worship corporately through the power of the Holy Spirit. They love to read the Bible. They're very good at reading the Bible. They're very on fire for God. Um, they love Jesus. I'm a big fan of them. I always tell people I didn't leave that background, 
but I, I feel like in becoming Catholic, I completed it or I built on it. So I, I've never rejected um, the faith of my upbringing, and I would never be where I am today with without that experience. Um, but when I was 18, I, I went to to college. I went to a place called Oral Roberts, uh, and Oral Roberts is a, a famous televangelist from the 60s and 70s. Uh, the, the college is in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is sort of like the rhinestone-studded buckle of the Bible Belt. Um, the campus is wild. If you've never been there, it looks like the Jetsons built it. I think it was Oral's. Um, dream of what the future would look like in the in you know 1960 when he built the place and it just turned out to be completely inaccurate but it's it's a fun place to to explore architecturally uh, so I went there because I, I wanted to be a pastor at that point but what happened is when I got there I was going to chapels and because we we would have two chapel services a week and all these really successful mega church pastors would come through and they'd speak and they're amazing speakers they had us all in the palm of their hand their stories were on point they were interesting they were poignant and I'm watching them and instead of being inspired I'm getting more and more depressed because I'm thinking I don't have any of these gifts I'm introverted I'm quiet I can't do what these people are doing. So what future do I have to be a pastor in a, in a Pentecostal church? I can't, I can't be what, what it seems the pastor needs to be. And so I had a crisis of faith. Uh, I became very cynical. I, I, I went through some phases. I tried to find God through uh, pure intellectual study. I thought, well, if I can just get it all right I'll dig into the church fathers and theology in a really deep way and, and I'll get it right. And then I'll be a good Christian. And, and, and so I'm, I'm kind of cycling through different ways of trying to, to keep my faith and failing. And finally, out of desperation, I went to an Episcopal church uh, down the street and I had never seen anything like it. So an Episcopal church, not Catholic, but the way they worship looks very Catholic. It looks like a mass. There's, there are differences if you know what you're looking for, but, um, but basically it's, it's, a, it's a more ritualistic, formal way of, of praying. And I loved it um, because what I saw was a chance for my interior life, my prayer life to be set free by the outward form. So the outward form for me has never been constricting of the ritual because I love the idea, okay, we all stand up now. Now we all make the sign of the cross. Oh, now we said the Lord's Prayer together. I know it's expected of me. I'm praying with everybody else. And now I'm not worried about how I'm going to pray. I'm just praying with the church. And so then my interior, my soul is set free to really connect with God as opposed to worrying about how I'm praying. Um, they have in the Episcopal Church some idea of the real presence of Christ through some sort of sacramental. I don't want to get too into it because right, they'll, they'll right. all tell you different things, but they have something equivalent to the Eucharist and the sacrament. And it, it was very clear in that context that it was Jesus doing the work, right? Going back to that Opus Dei or, or where's the grace coming from? It was Jesus at the altar doing the work. The priest was there as the steward of that work or as an instrument of God. And suddenly I saw... I think I can do that. And and that's where uh having heard your your conversion story before through all of this you end up in seminary formation to become an episcopal priest. Right. And which you do. You end up I love the way you've put this before that uh you were the episcopal priest where people go on vacation. You you spent many years in ministry in Cape Cod. Uh, but I know in our conversations before, along the lines, at some point you were back here in St. Louis visiting family, if I recall. And for whatever reason, you ended up at the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis here. And, and I'll never forget you telling me the story that there was something about it that the, the mass was taking place. And, and there was something about it that you absolutely hated it also wouldn't let go of you. The, 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 the Catholic mass got its claws into you and you couldn't shake it. And that ultimately led to you coming into the Catholic church. Am I remembering that correctly? That's, that's generally speaking correctly. Yeah. yeah. So in Tulsa, I went to the cathedral there uh, because I was 
desperate and I was looking for anything. So even before I became Episcopalian, I was exploring Catholic masses. Uh, and then, yes, I came back uh, home to visit parents as an Episcopal priest or as an Anglican pastor, I, I should say more accurately. And actually where I ended up at was St. Francis de Sales, uh-huh. where, they, where they say a traditional Latin mass with everything. It's like going to the 12th century. And I very much disliked it. <laughs> and, and reflecting on that later, I realized what I disliked, and I struggled even just with what I was seeing in, say, Holy Family Cathedral in Tulsa, is my soul wasn't shaped correctly to receive the grace yet. My desires were were malformed. And so I was so used to spiritual candy and easy feelings and whatever. And then all of a sudden I'm being presented with grace, like pure, unadulterated grace and beauty. The way the church has, has always presented this beauty to us. And I wasn't ready for it. And I didn't understand what was hitting me. Right. It was like, it was like being in a tidal wave almost. And so there were moments where I thought, Oh, this is transcendent. I love this during just one mass. Right. And I'd waffle back and forth and, Oh, well, this is odd. This is boring. Right. This is, I don't, what are they doing? And, uh, and, and over time I've come to understand, well, beauty, it, it can be difficult. It takes some effort for us to, to align ourselves to love what God loves and to receive from him what it is he wants to give us, the truly good things. So this is what, say, uh, Dante, that's, that's what he's talking about. So if you don't understand the divine comedy, that's all it is. So Dante at the beginning, malformed desires. He's, he's got some problems, right? He's, he's in the midst of a midlife crisis. He's obsessed with this girl he can't have. He, he desires all these things. He wants to be a famous writer. He's in exile. He desires to go home and take political power. Um, and his whole journey is learning to give up his own desires, his selfish desires, and then to learn what God desires for him. And that's a journey that all of us in one way or another undertake, learning what, what really is the good and the true and the beautiful. And the mass gives us that. Un, and it's, it's unembarrassed about it. Right? So it's, here's grace. Here's what God's asking of you. Come sit here, reflect, be contemplative, and allow God to change you. And that's not easy to allow yourself to be changed by God, to leave things behind that we thought were so important, all our vices and things about our personal identity that we thought were so important, but really aren't. But that's the only way that we're going to move forward and grasp really these, these things that God has for us that are so much better. I love the way that you describe this because I think of the pastor of the evangelical church where you grew up here in St. Louis and the television commercials he had and how uplifting they were. He's great. He would just come on and there'd be his face with this big white background behind him and God loves you. God loves you. And I feel great about that. Here's this guy telling me I'm loved. Um, but then you talk about how all of a sudden something was pointed out that you, know, you, you hated your experience because it was pointing out the flaws in you and how often we do that. We project our distaste for our flaws not onto ourselves but onto that which points out, Adam, you're flawed. Don't tell me that. I don't like you, you know, rather than say, I don't like my flaws. And the mass has a beautiful way of exposing things, how, how infinitesimal we are. I think of uh, a cartoon when I was growing up. It's a great big universe and we're all really puny. You know, that was the song they would sing. And yet here the God of the universe steps into time and steps into history for someone so puny. So let's talk about the mass for a moment because we, you, you drew some parallels between the Episcopal liturgy and the Catholic Mass, that this is not just something that, well, now the, the band is going to start playing, which again, you know, all of these things you said about your, your experience of uh, worship in the evangelical days, it's not that it was wrong, it's just incomplete. Um, we don't just start with some people playing music and then someone comes out and says a few words. This starts with a procession. Mass has all of these things, all of these little rubrics, we call them, of, of what you as the priest are supposed to do, what I as the member of the laity in the pew, what I am supposed to do. Um, how do you describe the Mass, maybe, to someone who says, Father, what, what is Mass? 
What is mass? Yeah, what, what, is, what is mass? How much time do you have here? Fourth time acceleration. You know, how do we know? I, I think the, the the classic way of describing it is the best place to start, which is it's the holy sacrifice, right? So the mass is the communication of Jesus Christ Himself. That's what is being communicated to us. It's the life of our Lord, and that's this language, as I say, the forgotten language, don't forget it, this symbolic, this dense symbolic language of beauty. And it's not just there to, to be whimsical or, or to keep outsiders confused or, or just because it's the way we've always done it. It's there because every single little symbolic thing means something very deep. And it, and, and it all adds up this layer of symbolic beauty to communicating the real presence of Christ. It's, it's like this jewel, or it's like the, the gold setting for the jewel that is the Eucharist. Because, of course, we could just go and we could line up. We, a church could just be, you, you all just show up and line up and I'll give you communion and then you leave. We don't need the prayers before and after, technically, if, to receive communion. But why do we go through the, all the trouble of the Mass? It's because... W- we want to see that it's not just a functional exchange of grace, but we're there to to worship and love God and to be loved by him and to participate in that sacrifice of our high priest. So all the activity at the Mass is really being uh, generated by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. He's the one praying. He's praying to God, his Father, and the prayer and the sacrifice is being empowered uh, and enlivened by the by the activity of the Holy Spirit, and we're all participating in it and making it our own. Would it be fair to say then that every little action from the time many many parishes we go to the bell rings in the back of church, and that signals the start of the entrance procession. That that every single action from that bell ringing to the time that ite misa es the mass is ended is said are all keys that help us unlock an understanding of that mystery that really has unfolded upon the altar, that that our Lord is sacramentally, truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, which, yes, I mean, I suppose we could go to the parish church right now, you could go to the tabernacle, unlock the door, and you could give me Holy Communion. I could receive Holy Communion from you, but that would be so incomplete from what's happening at the Mass. I guess that, that's my question. Is it fair to say that those are the keys to, to understanding that great mystery of our Lord present? That has been my experience. Right. I'm still learning about these mysteries of, of the Mass, and that's okay. I know we get frustrated. We think, I don't understand it. These mysteries, it's too dense. It's too much. Let's simplify it. I, I actually prefer to not <clears throat> know everything that's going on. So sometimes people will ask me, Father, why did you do this particular thing, this little motion at the Mass, and I say, I don't know. That's just what uh, priests have always done, so I do it too. And someday I'll try to figure it, like, I'll figure it out eventually. Um, but I learned things, literally last night I learned something new about the Mass that was, that was interesting. I was at a, at a talk that Father Sampson, I don't know if, if you all know Father Sampson, but he's a genius at, at um, doing these Lectio Divinas with the Scriptures. And he was talking about the, the road to Emmaus, and how that was essentially a liturgical description of a mass that our Lord is having with these two disciples. And he points out this, he pointed out an interesting detail. He said, well, after the dinner, after the mass, they receive, they recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread, and then Jesus disappears. Well, why did, why is that detail in there? And he says, that's because the mission of of the, of the Christian, of the church, disappears into the world. So you say, ite misa est, and then Christ is disappearing with you into your vocation, into your apostolates in the world. And I thought that was so beautiful, the way that, the, the way that that happens, the way that so our Lord is there, and then we're all sent out in that way. And I just hadn't known that little nuance of, of how to understand the Mass there. So I'm constantly learning more. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert at the Mass, but I trust the the customs, the traditions, the rubrics that have been handed down to me. And there's beauty in the, the fact that there's always more. 
There's always more of Jesus there for us to discover. There's always more truth and goodness to uncover. Because God is infinite. He has no beginning, no end. So uh, he will give us as much as we're willing to, to seek out. It's important to note, I think, something you just said, that a lot of these things, um, in fact, all of these things in the Mass, you do because the instructions say, Father, do this. You know, as, as the saying goes, uh, say the black, do the red. Um, for those unfamiliar with the Roman Missal, all of the instructions for the priest are printed in red text, and all of the, the dialogues that the priest would say are printed in black text. So say the black, do the red. It's not that you are sitting around one day in seminary with your classmates in liturgy and Hey guys, you know what would be neat? We should we should do this. This is something that's been handed down to us going back to the Last Supper. Even I mean, this is apostolic tradition from the early church that has organically developed over now two millennia. Right, right, and it's 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 humbling in one way as a priest. Uh, so Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, and this is my loose translation. He he one time in a, a talk to some of his priests, he said, "Look, like gentlemen, you're not that important <laughs> right? because the priests are. You, you, we could trade each other out. If I disappear, you know, uh, in the middle of mass, and another priest takes my place, it shouldn't even cause a blink of an eye, really, other, because it doesn't matter who the human being is as long as he's he's an ordained priest. The mass is what's important, and it's the priesthood of Christ." That is important. Yeah, that, the Latin term in persona Christi. Right. That you are not acting on behalf of Father Michael Rainier. You are acting in the person of Christ, the great high priest. Right. And so that means that we humble ourselves as priests, as human men, to what the church is asking us to do and, and not make up. I mean, it would be very prideful of me to think I could make up something that's different and better. Uh, than what the church is doing. So what I try to do is, as a person, as a personality, is simply get out of the way and use whatever skills I have, you know, in, in terms of homiletic skills or speaking skills, to point to the mystery of the Eucharist and help people to be to be ready for it. And, and that's something one of your parishioners said um, in, in an interview that was given a few months ago, that all of these things are not superficial things, but things that turn your head and say, look here, see this, this is where you should be focusing your attention. So even the the, the incense rising is drawing our attention somewhere. The ringing of the bell at the consecration is drawing our attention somewhere. Um, every, every last little thing, as you said, has a purpose. So in the title of the book, uh, you say how recovering the poetics of the Mass will change our lives. That implies that there's something that's been lost that we need to recover. What do you mean by that? So my, my concern uh, is that us Catholics have fallen into the bad habit of, of thinking of the Mass as something functional and something practical. So if it's not practical, what's the point? So we go to Mass and we think, what am I getting out of this? How am I being fed? What practical tools did the homily give me? Uh, those, those sorts of things, right? And, and we are, so we're approaching it in those terms, and that's why we have this phenomenon of the Mass being emptied out of, of its symbolic language. So everything's simplified. Uh, the, the buildings tend to have less artwork in them. The, the liturgies are, 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 are simplified. Um, a lot of places you could go and not smell incense maybe um, but a couple times a year. Maybe Christmas and Easter, the incense will be brought out, and that's, that's the only time you'll experience it. Or they don't use bells because, and I understand that it's a, it's a positive uh, motivation because people are worried this won't be practical it won't be relevant and the church is going to shrink it's not going she's not going to have the proper impact um, in terms of ev evangelization and so the motivation is is a positive one so I, I would never judge that but my experience is that that doesn't work um, because when we empty out the mystery of the mass and take that poetic language out of the mass uh, people begin to realize, well, I don't really need to, to be here, right? Because I, I can get some practical, you know, uh, some practical insight just by watching a really good preacher I like on YouTube on Sunday morning, and I'll, it'll be the same thing. 
Um, but my point is that when we do that, we, we're, we're flattening out, we're making our whole experience very shallow because we're only looking at this life. We're looking at well, how can I uh, help, how can I get into like a self-help way of thinking and, and live my best life here and now. But the Mass is going so much deeper than that. It's a, it's a transcendent, it's a vertical experience. Um, and if we, if, we, if we lose that, then we, we really lose uh, the heart of our faith. And, and all of those exterior things that, that seem, oh, these details aren't very important. Like, why do you have to use incense? So I do field complaints, right? I won't, I won't uh, gloss over this. You use incense at the main, at the main, the principal Sunday mass every Sunday. Why? It's just a detail. Get rid of it. A few people don't like it. But my point is we need all of those imaginative elements because we're, we're embodied human beings. It's not just about our soul. It's also our body. And so we learn through our senses, through what we smell, what we see, what we taste, what we hear. And so everything should be of the best quality for a couple of reasons. First, because we want to give God our very best gift at, in worship. But also, secondly, because that's how we learn as human beings, uh, particularly children. So what I, what I notice in our parish is that the children become very, very engaged in those imaginative elements of the Mass. And they're learning how to pray and how to love Jesus through something as simple as hearing the bell ring. Because all of a sudden... They get excited. They hear the bell ring. They're very proud that they know that it's coming, what it means. You can hear them whisper, shouting. You know how kids whisper, but it's incredibly loud. And you can hear them doing that in the nave during the mass, telling their mom, mom, did you hear the bell ring? That means Jesus is here now. And the kids know because they are learning through their imagination. Or kids will come into our church all the time and you'll hear them turn to their mom or dad and they'll say, it smells like church here. It smells like church because they're smelling the, the incense lingering in the air. And so they know they're home. They know they're in a sacred space and they're going to, they're going to love Jesus for a little bit. I think back to my first experience of the Holy Mass at your parish. And it was a few years back. It was a very stressful week, month, period of time. I don't remember the exact specifics other than there was a lot going on. I was feeling the burden of being under so much stress. And the best analogy I can draw for my experience of attending Holy Mass at your parish, and, and I may get in trouble for this with Father Michael Rainier, the, po <laughs> the poet, is it, it took me to that scene in the movie Dead Poets Society where Robin Williams has all of the boys stand up on the desk to get a different perspective. And then they all shout something and jump off the desk. But the whole point was to get a different perspective. And it was a, a Sunday evening. And the first thing I noticed was that the lights were not turned on. There were some lights on, some electric lights, mainly pointed uh, towards the sanctuary so that you could see what you're doing. But it was mostly the soft glow of the, the lights in the ambulatory or the, the side aisles uh, in layman's terms. Um, and then the candlelight of all the candles on the altar. And at first I thought, oh, wow, this is different. You know, it, it, was, it was very striking how different it was because everywhere else I go, it's electric light, electric light, electric light. Uh, everything in the world is bright and flashing. And then I, w without knowing what to expect, all of a sudden there was the bell rang to signal the beginning of the procession and there was chant. There was, there was no, uh, him, as we've grown accustomed to, but there was actually the entrance antiphon that was prescribed in the Missal. And everything from that point on seemed so deliberate and careful that it, it, it was another worldly experience for me. And the only reaction I could have to it by the time Mass was concluded, I literally had to stay and, and just sit in the pew for about 10 minutes to come back, I don't want to say come back to reality because that was the supernatural reality, but, but to come back to what daily life is here on this earth. And it was a very overwhelming, but, but now it's something that I find I crave very much when this life is getting to be this much 
to have that opportunity to, as it were, step out of this life and for a moment step into the next. Is that, is, is that odd? Am, have I just told all of our listeners that I'm crazy and <laughs> what I'm experiencing here? Well, thank you for telling me that. I don't, I don't think you've ever shared that with me. So yeah. I'm a little stunned actually that, that the mass was that, that affecting. And, and it wasn't, you know, in, in particular anything of, of father Michael Rainier, because right, as I've right. grown to know you over the years, uh, I, I wouldn't say the, the persona that you exude at Holy mass as the priest celebrant is the same persona you exude when we're having coffee or, or chatting in the rectory or enjoying a pint somewhere. It's two very, two very different personas. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it sounds like you're detail oriented yeah. too, because all those choices that you point out that seem almost unimportant. Well, why did he, why did he not turn on all the, all the lights? Right. I thought about that very carefully because what I had noticed was we, uh, about six, seven years ago, we had done a, um, um, the Mass and Advent for, for Mary, the, the Rorate Celi, which is only, traditionally only candles. And we did that, and there were no lights on in the room. And after that Mass, literally every single person there said they'd never experienced anything like it. It was beautiful. They want to do it all the time. And so I thought, well, why don't we do it all the time? Why don't we keep lower lights? Not because it's just some goofy, you know, affected thing to do, but because that choice creates a warm atmosphere. So you have living flame on the candles. And of course, the, the candles are symbolic, like everything, <laughs> of something deeper. They're symbolic of Christ himself, this, this living flame. There's something very fundamental about fire that's comforting to us as human beings. I mean, the Holy Spirit is depicted as, as a flame, and we'll sit around campfires, and we find it very comforting. And, uh, the, and then the way the light scheme works is it, it, it focuses everything on the altar, so you come in and that's what you see. You see the altar, you see the candles on the altar. And the, the dimness in the nave and the rest of the church is very peaceful. And so you calm down and all the distractions disappear and you're able to focus. And, and then that helps us to communicate the peace that passes all understanding, which it sounds like you, you really experience as a gift of the spirit that particular night. There's a lot of different remarkable things about that experience. I mean, for one, in that, we, we think of the Mass not so much as an individual act, but as a communal act, and yet it is still an individual encounter. And so because of the darkness, you know, I couldn't make out Bob or Sue or Joe or Jane, but then when you would sing one of the dialogues, you know, the Lord be with you, and, and we would respond, and with your spirit, you'd hear the whole of the church re- resonate in, in response to this. And so you had the communal, but it it allowed for that individual encounter with our Lord and in such a remarkable way. You and I have talked before about this, that, that that experience that I've had, even though you're hearing it for the first time now, that encounter with beauty is at the heart of evangelization for you, that, that you firmly believe that that kind of encounter can bring souls, if not if they're already in the church, they could bring them to the church, but if they're already in the church, it could bring them deeper into relationship with our Lord. Is that correct? That's been my experience, uh, the, particularly the development of the interior life. We, we've seen a lot of that happening with spontaneous men's groups and mom's groups and small Bible study groups and young adult holy hours, they've all sprung up because suddenly people are being nourished at the Mass on Sunday and they, they want to develop their relationship with, with Jesus more during the week. Uh, I've always felt very strongly if I'm going to invite a friend, if I'm going to go out and evangelize, I want to invite him to something that's worth inviting him to. So, so I want the Mass to be really high quality and, and attractive even if it is slightly confusing at first, uh, like that was my like my experience when I first went, which is it's a little off-putting, but I'm intrigued. I want to see it again. I want to understand what these people are doing and why the, the experience felt so mysterious and authentic, which is a commodity that's in, in rare supply out there in the world where everything's so frantic and artificial and consumerist. 
So my own personal story is that I'm Catholic because of beauty. Uh, and so when I, I guess I say that I think beauty is evangelistic, I, I'm speaking from my own experience. Uh, I, I did not become Catholic because I read some sentence in the catechism one day that, that changed my view of the truth or because I had an encounter even with a, a Catholic who talked me into it or, or anything like that. For me, it was a very slow, steady process, but I, I would not have become Catholic unless I had encountered the beauty of the Mass. And uh, I, I do hear from other people who have similar experiences. Um, in our modern society, it's very difficult to evangelize now through truth or even, even goodness because you can, you can convince someone through a logical argument that what you've said is true, and then they'll shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's your truth, and that's fine. People don't seem to agree anymore on what's good and what's bad. Or on, even on the importance of goodness. Well, we don't, we don't right, really need goodness. Right. But I'll say that when you encounter beauty, whether it be at the Mass or you could see it just, say, in the, the local art museum when people are standing in front of the Monet painting of the water lilies and you see them and they're, they're entranced by it, they're, they're going to a deeper reality and they don't know what's happening and they can't argue with it. And that's, that's one of the wonderful things about the Mass is that you don't have to be a studied theologian or an apologist. You don't have to have a master's in divinity to have an authentic encounter with our Lord in prayer because of the beauty of the Mass. It, it, it's amazing to me that in all of these things, you know, as someone who's worked in liturgy, watching what you do, I, I have an appreciation for all of the many things that you have to do from how you handle the thurible when you are incensing the gifts, that there are certain patterns of uh, how you swing, literally swing the thurible uh, and, and to incense the gifts or incense the altar. But the person in the pew doesn't need to know that. They just see what's happening. They see something and, and they're drawn deeper into that. We talked earlier, though, that at the end of all of this, it's, it, you know, and this is what I love, that, that term source and summit, that the Eucharist is the source and summit of our lives. And we're not just talking about our Lord sacramentally present in the Eucharist. We're also talking about the actual action, the Mass. It draws us in, but then it sends us out. And that seems to be a big point you're making in the book, is that our lives only make sense in the context of the Mass, and that the Mass sends us out so that we can better live our lives and live out that vocation, whether it's as a husband and father, a wife and mother, a riveter, a lawyer, a doctor, uh, you know, whatever it may be. Right. So if you're trying to make your life a beautiful experience, right, a, a, a living, breathing poem, maybe that's a little affected for me to, to put it that way. Oh, I'm a poem. <laughs> right. But, but I do think we all desire, I want to live a life that's not just Functional. I don't want to just get up and, and go to work and then and then you know eat the the cheapest most nutritious meal that's bland and boring and then exercise for two hours and then get a full eight hours of sleep and right we want to eat good food and we want to see friends and 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 go on vacations and see beautiful places and have experiences and none of that makes any sense from a survival perspective. You could survive very easily without any of those, those things, but that's not what it means to be human. What it means to be human is to live in light of, of eternity, to live in light of that transcendent soul that God has gifted us with. And that means, by definition, having a poetic existence, right? So taking your own particular concrete circumstances, your, your temperament, your whatever, your victories, your defeats, the things that matter to you, and then living them in the light of God's eternal Love and by definition, I think that means that that you you're a poem, and that starts with the mass. And if we don't have that, if we're not being fed with that poetic language, I don't see how you live the rest of your days with that attitude. I think of one of my favorite prayer disciplines, the midday examine, and having adapted it a little bit from Saint Ignatius to do two very concrete things: one, to thank God for something in particular. You know, uh, it could be the way the sunrise was creating beautiful colors in the sky over my street as I stepped out the front door. It could be the text message I got from a friend earlier this morning. It could be the phone call I got from the doctor saying, that, hey, you know those test results you were waiting for? Everything came back great. But to, every day to say, thank you, God, for this very particular thing. 
Then also to ask for the grace in another particular area. Here's an area where I'm falling short today. Here's an area where I need your help. I cannot do this on my own. And that what you've just said helps me to see all of those areas of thanksgiving in a deeper way. That, you know, someone might say, you know, that's a very silly thing to say there was something about the crunch of the cereal this morning at breakfast. Why would you be grateful for that? And yet, from what you've just said, it sounds like a very wonderful thing to be grateful for. <laughs> oh, I think so. I think yeah. so. I, be grateful for everything, even if you don't know why. Uh, Chesterton has a really good discussion of that. I think it's the last chapter of his, his autobiography where he says, look, the, 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 the main lesson I've learned in my life is, is gratitude. Because that gratitude is what, is what allows me to be happy. I, I see a dandelion. I think that dandelion's beautiful. That dandelion's going to be in heaven with me someday. And, and then all of a sudden, you're living with a different perspective. Everything's a gift from God. Yeah. Everything. Last question for us here. Um, someone gets your book. And by the way, we should, we should mention this. The Forgotten Language is available from Sophia Press. That's right. So just... Go online and search The Forgotten Language, Father Michael Rainier, Sophia Press, and and you will find it very easily. I know this. I did this earlier today. Um, what do you? How do you hope the reader is different after reading your book? Because I, I can't imagine your intent is. I hope everyone reads my book and then says, how, how awesome Father Michael Rainier is. Right, right. You know? He's so right. He's so wise, right? Now, I, I hope that if you, if you read it, if you pick it up and you read it, that you're inspired to go out and live a beautiful life. And, and to make the mass beautiful and, and uh, to, um, to open up that space within, within your soul for that interior life where God can remake you. So if, if that's what you come away, just with that, that general sense of inspiration, I'm happy. So I'm not giving you any prescriptive or specific ways you have to pray or be just like me and this is what the mass has to look like specifically you have to go to this kind of mass or that kind of mass i'm not really concerned with those questions so and maybe that's helpful to be really clear about this is not a book that's making a contribution to liturgical wars or saying that there's only one way to pray and worship as the church to me as long as it has this poetic element to it that we're slowing down we're paying attention. We're breathing deeply. We're allowing God, Jesus, to take the center place, uh, that center spot in our worship, and that becomes the source of, of happiness for our lives. If that's what you come away from my book, uh, understanding or, or, or with a new appreciation for, then I'll, I'll be pleased. Wonderful. Father, could I ask you to uh, offer a, a prayer or a blessing? Sure, I'll give you a listeners. quick blessing. How's that sound? Dominus vobiscum. Et cum spiritu tuo. Benedicat vos omnipotens Deus Pater et Filios et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. We want to thank Father Michael Rainier for being with us on this, uh, what will be the first episode of the Deeper Podcast. And we've got some exciting things in store. So you're going to want to pay attention for the schedule when it comes out, because our next episode is going to be all about your phone and how your phone is changing the wiring in your head and why screen addiction is a very real thing with very serious implications on our desire and our calling to grow in holiness. Until next time, I'm Adam Wright. Thanks for listening. <laughs>